This is the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In probably a matter of hours, most of us will be going back to eating leavened bread. Perhaps even this evening, some of us will be going out to eat at restaurants and once again be enjoying rolls and bread and crackers and other foods with leavening. You know, before the feast, we diligently clean out all the leaven, every nook and cranny, throwing away yeast or bread if it's not yet consumed. And for seven days, we eat only unleavened bread, and we think about all that that represents. And then at the end of the last day, suddenly we go back to leavened bread. What does this mean for us? Is it just a seven-day exercise and not eating raised bread? Should we, if we're wanting to avoid leaven altogether, never eat unleavened bread? Would that be more righteous? A lifelong reminder of coming out of sin to never, ever again eat leavened bread. And at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when we go back to eating leaven at the end of the last holy day, can we also go back to sinning? Is that the lesson? Well, we obviously know the answer. Obviously, we don't go back to sin. But why do we go back to eating leavened bread when these days are over? Maybe that's not something we often think about, but I'd like to explore this a little bit today on this last day of Unleavened Bread. If you want a title, it is Forward to the Kingdom. Forward to the Kingdom. The lesson is clear that as we come out of sin, which is what these days picture, that we are never to go back. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, 2 Peter Chapter 2 and verse 20. We read, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than at the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. The scripture is pretty clear about what sin is and how God sees sin, that it is wretched, it is corrupt, it is detestable even though Satan the devil packages it as something to be desired. Of course, we are not to go back into sin. The story of Lot and Lot's wife is also instructive in this way as well. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 19 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 1. We know the story how Lot and his family were told to come out of Sodom and not look back to not go back, it's instructive for us today. And interestingly, it appears that this event happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 1, it says, There came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face towards the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet. And you shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, No, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly 
And they turned in unto him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread. And they did eat. The old Ambassador College Correspondence Course, Lesson 26 states, Tradition says that these events happened during the season of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, although they occurred several centuries before this festival was commanded by God. It is interesting to note that unleavened bread is mentioned in connection with the departure of Lot and his daughters from that sinful society. Genesis 19 and verse 3. So the angels told Lot and his family to escape with their lives, to run for their lives, to leave that evil society with no desire ever to come back. Well, of course, one in their family did desire to look back, and we read that in verse 22. It says, Haste you, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till you come thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. In verse 23, the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him. And she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife didn't really fathom the need to make a clean and absolute break from that society, and she, of course, paid the price for it dearly. What about us? What have we learned this year in leaving our past behind? Our old ways, our natural inclinations, Our habits, our normal ways of reacting, of interacting, our words, our language, our thoughts. God's way is not compatible with Satan's world. And therefore, we are commanded to come out of this world, to forsake this world, even though we must live in this world. Especially at the end time, the call to come out of the world is even more urgent. Notice in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1, Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1, John records in the book of Revelation a strong exhortation for God's people to come out of the world and not look back. Revelation 18 and verse 1, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. Come out of her, Get out, flee for your lives. Exactly what the angels told Lot and his family. We see a parallel. Before Sodom was destroyed, we are to come out of this system as a warning before it is destroyed. Notice verse 5. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. And the cup which she has filled, filled to her double. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. 
Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. A strong parallel with Sodom, frankly. For strong is the Lord God who judges her, and the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, just like Sodom, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is your judgment come. The warning is there, but the judgment comes quickly when it comes. Babylon was destroyed with the same finality as Sodom. So it's clear for us, as we are in the process of coming out of this world, symbolized by our eating unleavened bread during these last seven days. But then back to the original question, why then do we eat unleavened bread for only seven days? Why not all year long if it represents sin and we are to come completely out of sin, would it not make sense to never eat leaven again? Well, of course, it's fine to eat leavened bread the rest of the year. God gave bread for man to enjoy. It's a staple of life. Psalm 104.14 talks about how bread strengthens man's heart. <clears throat> Seven, of course, is the number of completeness. So one week of eating unleavened bread represents a whole lifetime of coming out of sin and leaving sin behind us and changing and growing. So it's symbolic. The unleavened bread that we eat for seven days represents a whole lifetime of putting sin out of our lives. And of course, as we refrain from leavened bread and we are to feed on the unleavened bread of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> as we eat unleavened bread for seven days, then of course it is symbolic of us feeding on the unleavened bread of Jesus Christ our whole life, every day of our lives. But there is also an interesting lesson, it seems, about leavened bread. As we go back into the world of breads and crackers and rolls and so forth, uh, even this evening perhaps at the end of this Sabbath, what is the lesson of leavened bread? God doesn't always use leavening as a symbol of evil and sin. And perhaps it's helpful as we do partake of leavened bread after these days to note that. Notice in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 1. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And then now we find a narrative of some of the parables of Jesus, lessons that taught certain things about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of heaven. Of course, most of the hearers did not understand. They weren't yet called and weren't supposed to understand yet. But we are called. They are intended for us, and we can learn a great deal from them. Now notice in verse 33 a very interesting parallel parable, particularly as we are ending the process of eating unleavened bread for seven days, and going back to leavened bread. Verse 33, Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, 
which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now, what in the world is this talking about? What would leaven have to do with the kingdom of God? Does leaven have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Certainly, there will be no sin or corruption or evil or malice or wickedness or hypocrisy in the kingdom. And we spent seven days thinking about all the things that leaven represents as sin and how bad it is and how we have to come out of it and how we have to overcome it. And leaven certainly does symbolize sin, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. But it also symbolizes the kingdom of God, as Christ said right here. And it's action in the growth of the kingdom of God. So I think it's interesting to think about and ponder as we leave these days behind us and begin to partake of those tasty morsels of bread. There are other lessons for us having to do with bread other than sin. We are to remain in a state of being unleavened spiritually. But it's interesting to apply the lesson of leaven in a positive way to the kingdom of God as we're leaving these days, and that's, of course, exactly what Jesus Christ did. He said that the kingdom of God was like leaven. It would start small, but it would grow and eventually fill up the whole earth. I think that's interesting because, of course, during the days of unleavened bread, we avoid leavened bread to symbolize coming out of sin. But after the days of unleavened bread, we can appreciate the positive lessons of leaven as we go forward to the kingdom. It's interesting, you know, tradition has it that Moses and the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea on this day. Kind of parallels what we're talking about. Uh, the events that face them on this day, Exodus chapter 14 and verse 9. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 9. After they came out of Egypt, after they went through the seven days of unleavened bread, notice what they faced on the last day. It says in verse 9 of Exodus chapter 14, But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them in camping by the sea beside Behahiroth before Baal-zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Already, we can see in the story the human tendency to forget the lessons that we've learned, to forget how bad sin is in such a short time. They had already forgotten how bad their life in Egypt was. And you know, it's easy for us to put down the Israelites. How silly this sounds for them wanting to go back. But brethren, what about us? How quickly do we, if we're not careful, go back to behavior which makes no sense, which hurts us, which hurts those around us, say things we shouldn't, think things we shouldn't, do things we ought not? Is it not really the same thing? Is it not really 
just as silly and unthinkable as the Israelites seven days after leaving Egypt wanting to go back. We all must struggle against sin and never stop struggling against it. But that's not all we must do. And God showed that to both the people and Moses right here in this verse. Notice verse 13. After the people cried out to him, saying they wanted to go back into Egypt, Moses said unto the people, Fear you not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Moses was right up to a point. There was no going back. Sin had no part with them. Egypt had no part with them. Sin has no part with us as we leave these days. But even Moses didn't really know how to go forward. So he told them to stand still. Don't go back into Egypt. But he didn't yet know how to go forward. And who can blame him? The Egypts were behind them. Egyptians were behind them. The mountains were on the side of them and the sea was in front of them. How could they possibly go forward? How could he possibly give them an answer? Well, God had the answer. God said, don't go back, but don't also just stand still. Go forward. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore Christ thou unto me, speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. God told him, But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. He said, go forward. You know, brethren, we never really stand still, do we? We're either going forward or we're going backwards. We mustn't go back into sin, that's obvious. But just staying where we are isn't the answer either. Just staying in a state of immobilization, we've got to be making progress. And it seems that that's what God is teaching us in the overall sense through all the holy days that God's plan is going forward. Think about it. It starts very small with a very tiny few, but it's going to grow to spread to the whole world. Of course, we know this. Jesus Christ was sent to this earth. His work and His sacrifice was the first step. The Passover we just observed one week ago explains His crucial part in the plan. But even in his lifetime, he began to prepare for expansion, didn't he? He taught disciples. He taught others who would then in turn teach others who would then in turn teach others and others and others. And a company of saints has been being prepared to be first fruits, learning to come out of sin, learning to come out of the world. And, of course, that's depicted by the Feast of Unleavened Bread and, of course, then by Pentecost. And at his return, pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, those saints are going to reign with him as they begin to in turn spread his kingdom around the earth. First of all, only holding territory in that sense. But as we as the saints begin to work with the people, the survivors, we will make inroads into the territory of their minds. And the kingdom will continue 
to expand its reach one person at a time as the millennium goes forward. This, king, this again, is illustrated by the parable of the woman who put leaven in the dough. Of course, after the millennium, we find the kingdom spreading to include other human beings from times past who are resurrected to know God for the first time. And then eventually the kingdom expands to not include just the earth, but of course the whole universe. And then the Father brings His headquarters down to earth and the kingdom has spread and has control and has influence and is in the, in the process of rebuilding the whole universe. What a wonderful plan and what a wonderful program that God has set in motion. And it's illustrated by the parable of the woman who put leaven in the dough. Notice Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And we are a part of that plan. As we go forward from the Feast of Unleavened Bread, from coming out of Egypt, from putting out sin in our life, we have to go forward, don't we? We have to be a part of the growth of God's kingdom in embryo, which, of course, the church is now. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. <clears throat> For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The same concept, the same idea, the growth of the kingdom of God. That's what this is talking about. So again, what does this have to do with us now? As we've been thinking about getting the leaven out for seven days and getting the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth in, feeding on Jesus Christ, as we go back to eating regular bread, we must not forget the lessons we've learned to stay out of sin, to feed on Christ always. But maybe even eating that regular puffy bread in the coming days and weeks and months can also remind us to go forward because leaven also symbolizes the growth of the kingdom. And again, the church is the kingdom in embryo as Mr. Armstrong Taught us. Brethren, how real is the kingdom to us? You know, as we leave these days, the days of unleavened bread, this is a wonderful opportunity to take what we've learned, to go forward with a renewed vision of the kingdom and stoke that fire even more, to burn brighter, to make the kingdom even more real to us, not allowing ourselves to drift, to be apathetic or complacent. Because if we drift, we will soon find ourselves back in Egypt. We know that. <clears throat> Interestingly, I. Abrahams points out in the book Studies in Pharisaism and the Gospels this concept about the parable of the leaven in the dough. He says, Jesus likened the silent but effective growth of the kingdom in the mass of humanity to the hidden but pervasive action of leaven in the midst of the dough, Matthew 13, verse 33. He then quotes a rabbi, Joshua, who likens leaven in this sense to peace. He says, Great is peace in that peace is to the earth as leaven to dough. 
For had not God set peace in the earth, the sword and the wild beast would have depopulated it. In this sense, peace would not be inert, but an active agency, a ferment of the good against the evil. Kind of interesting the way he describes the growth of the kingdom of God. Hidden, silent at first, but a lot of activity going on under the surface, right? In the lives of the saints, people who are striving against sin, who are swimming upstream, God using trials and tests to prepare us actively, not passively, for our roles in the kingdom. It's interesting that yeast is active, it ferments, it grows, it does something. After thinking about yeast for seven days, in a negative sense, Christ used it now in the positive sense to refer to the growth of His kingdom. If we are really preparing for His kingdom, we've got to be actively growing as well now. We can take what we've learned in these seven days and go forward and grow. Notice in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And that yeast, in that sense, as in the dough growing, the kingdom growing, in embryo, in the church, that yeast is slowly, step by step, person by person, moment by moment, decision by decision, doing its work as God's people pass the tests that will enable them to rule over the whole world. As we come out of Egypt and then take the next step and press towards the kingdom of God, not going backwards, but not even standing still, going forwards. Interesting in this light, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 15. Leviticus 23 and verse 15 He's talking about the counting towards the Feast of Weeks. He says, And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. Now, we can certainly understand this as meaning that the Old Testament and New Testament congregations of the church were both represented by these two loaves, were still made up, a peop, up, made up of people who are physical, who are carnal, who are fleshly, who still are prone to sin, those striving not to with God's help. But in the light of what we're talking about, isn't it interesting that Jesus use leavening as a description of the church of God actively pressing towards the kingdom of God. That leaven can mean the growth of the kingdom, even if it's only the kingdom in embryo. The point is that we have to strive after the kingdom, don't we? 
Even after we come out of sin, after we leave Egypt, we can't go back and we can't stand still. Well, what are some things that can help us to actively seek the kingdom, brethren? To have that vision of the kingdom, to make it real to us and continue to be real to us even after these days are over. Well, in the time remaining, let's talk about some practical things that can help us moving forward, keep us moving forward towards the kingdom, even after the days of unleavened bread are past. One thing that can help us keep actively pursuing the kingdom is, number one, talk about it. Talk about it. Talk about the kingdom. We come together each week to fellowship, don't we? What do we talk about at church with one another? You know, it's not wrong to talk about what's been happening in our lives that week. In fact, we need to, to understand each other, to really get to know each other, to share our lives with one another. But how much of our conversation is just about trivia, which has no bearing on our calling at all? Do we only talk about, you know, the latest movie we've seen or the latest song we've heard? And little by little, how about trying to move our conversation into topics about the kingdom when we fellowship? We can do this every day of the week, of course, with our spouse or our family if our spouse is in the church. But especially on the Sabbath, this is a wonderful chance to do this. and We can all grow in it. Talking about it helps keep the kingdom real to us. Notice in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 11. And that, of course, is a crucial thing to keep in mind as we are striving to keep moving forward towards the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 11. Notice it says, And the Lord shall guide you continually... And satisfy your soul in drought and make fat your bones. And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call a Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. God says through the prophet Isaiah, that keeping the Sabbath involves even thinking about what words we say on the Sabbath. Now, why is that? Well, God knows that the words we say have a tremendous effect on our thoughts and the train of our thoughts. And the more we try to direct our conversation towards His kingdom, the more our thoughts are going to follow. It's natural. It's just easy to fall into the rut of just talking about whatever comes to mind But one way to upgrade our vision and our focus of the kingdom, even after the days of unleavened bread are over, are to focus on talking about the kingdom, especially on the Sabbath. Verse 14, Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You know, you've heard the saying, at least perhaps a version of it, small minds talk about people, Uh, broader minds talk about things, but really big minds talk about ideas. Ideas. Right now, the kingdom isn't here. 
We can't see it. We can't touch it or taste it. The only way it will be real to us is if we talk about it. And what greater opportunity than with each other on the Sabbath to do that? Sometimes in our clubs, in spokesman's clubs, in the topics, there are questions about how would you solve this or that problem in the millennium? How, what would you do in your city about that situation or the other one? Or how will this or that law or statute affect society in the kingdom? Great questions to spur discussion about the kingdom, to get us to think about it, our part in it, that it's real, that it's there, that it's coming, and we're preparing for it. And our calling is all about that. That's what we can all do more. Talk about the kingdom. As we come out of Egypt and move forward towards the kingdom. You know, one person who talked about the kingdom a lot when he was on earth was Jesus Christ. He was talking about it constantly, wasn't he? And that, of course, brings us to the next point. To make the kingdom more real to us. Number two, read the Gospels. Number two, read the Gospels. We may have read through many of the passages having to do with Passover in our self-examination leading up to Passover, and that's helpful. That gets us in the frame of mind for the Passover and what Christ did for us. But how about now going back, and if we haven't done this lately, read through all the Gospels and just pick out and focus on all the things that Jesus said about the kingdom. You know, it's an amazing study to do that to realize how much the kingdom was on his mind. It was something he talked about all the time. Even a cursory glance at the Gospels will show that he talked about it constantly everywhere he went, either in name or in the context. He was talking about the kingdom. It was a consistent theme in his mind, and it came out in what he talked about. It was real to him. Notice Matthew chapter 13 in verse 24, and the, and the more we read the Gospels, even after this time, make a project out of it, the more we are going to also be in tune with what was real to him, and it will be real to us. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. We started here a little while ago looking at one of the parables, parables but look at the other parables and, and what the focus was on. Matthew 13, verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven, notice the topic, notice the context, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. And, of course, he explains about the parable of the tares. Another one, verse 31. He says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Then he explains how it would grow from the tiniest seed into a great big tree. Verse 33, Another parable spoke he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a man woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. We already read that one, that it would start small and would grow to spread throughout the whole world, and of course we're a part of that growth going on in what's going on in us right now. Verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened a treasure hidden in a field, the which when a man has found, he hides and for joy thereof goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Another aspect of the kingdom of God. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. All these different parables show us a little different aspect of the kingdom of God. The point is this was on his mind, and he was striving to teach about it. He was focused on it. Verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. You really get a sense of what was on Jesus' mind. And that was the kingdom, the future. It's eye-opening to look at the Gospels from that perspective and really try to glean what was the focus of his thoughts and his words. Now, surely there were certainly times when he wasn't talking about it, um, not every second of every day, but these are the highlights of his work and his life, and it does show the focus and the direction of his life. And this is the man from whom the kingdom would spring, from one man eventually spreading to the whole world, to all humanity, all who want it, and eventually to the whole universe. It had to fill him. It had to preoccupy his thoughts and his words and his mind. And we can learn a great deal just in soaking up what was recorded about his life and how that was a focus of his life. Really more than sustenance itself. Notice in John chapter 4 and verse 31. John chapter 4 and verse 31. John chapter 4 and verse 31, In the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you are not aware of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Has any man brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said unto them, My meat, my sustenance, that which makes me fulfilled, that which drives me, is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Of course, it didn't mean that he never had to eat. He, he, of course, ate. But it does show something remarkably remarkable about what was the driving force in his life. The kingdom of God was the focus of his life. It was real to him. And doing the work that would lay the foundation of that kingdom was the excitement and the motivation of his life. Verse 35, Say you not, there are yet four months, and then comes harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. It's urgent. There's work to do now. Don't say that it's all later. Don't say that we have time left to wait until it has to be done. Do it now. Verse 36, And he that reaps receives wages and gathers fruit unto life eternal, that both he that sows and he that reaps may rejoice together. We are going that same direction, brethren. The kingdom of God, life eternal. You know, someday the problems and concerns and the troubles of this life are going to seem so insignificant compared to what we experience when we're there. But we can't yet see it now. And yet, the more we talk about it, the more we read about the life of Jesus Christ, the more it will become real to us and a focus in our life as it was in his that brings us 
up to our next point in helping us to keep moving towards God's kingdom. As we come out of Egypt, as we come out of sin, we don't want to go back. We don't want to stand still. We want to move forward. How do we do that? Well, number three, guard your time with God. Guard your time with God. How do we stay on focus on the kingdom of God? How do we keep our minds on the kingdom? Well, we talk about it. We read about it about how Christ was focused on it. But we also need to talk about it to God in prayer. You know, there are a thousand things that can cut into our prayer time with God, and it's so easy to let it slip. It's so easy to let it become less of a priority than it should be. But at some point, we've got to make the determination of what's important in our life, don't we? If the kingdom of God is important, the most important thing, then talking with God, communing with God, spending time with God in the morning, at the beginning of the day, and at the end of the day, it's going to take precedence over everything else. And of course, there are times we'll miss. There are times we won't get as much time as we want. But how are we going to have that focus and that vision if we don't really spend time with God? And how are we going to spend time with God unless we guard that time diligently? If you and I are preparing for the kingdom, and we are part of that leaven that is slowly but steadily growing, hidden, underneath the surface, yet active and fervent, to eventually permeate the whole world at the resurrection when we're born into the family of God, this means everything. And we have to guard our time with God zealously. Look how important time with His Father was to Jesus Christ. Notice in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. Do we get the prayer time that we really want and that we really need? Well, if we're not, let's make a new commitment to put it in a higher priority, to put it number one in our life, our time with God, our community with God, so that we have the focus and the zeal to be going forward to the kingdom. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now, what was Jesus praying about? Verse 13. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. He was praying about the kingdoms. you notice that? He was about to select twelve men who would carry on the responsibility of conveying his message of the kingdom to the next generation after he was gone. Now, this was a heavy decision. A lot was riding on that decision. And you know that the weight of the world was on his shoulders that night to choose the right men that would be faithful, that would carry on that work even after he was gone. Twelve men. Of course, one was prophesied to, to betray him. But the others, he had to choose the right men, those who would be faithful, those who would be committed. After all, at this point, the kingdom of God was only one person course with the father as well but it was to grow person by person and so these saints these 12 
and the one who would replace Judas. They had to be the right person. Of course, the father would call them. And then, of course, others would be called to prepare for specific jobs in the kingdom, all trained to be ready to go at the resurrection. But the first step was to have the right leaders in place at his departure. Huge step. That's why he probably prayed all night. He was praying about the kingdom. He was thinking about the kingdom. He was focused on the future of the kingdom and how this was laying the foundation and the groundwork for everything else that would come after. Brethren, what about us? We aren't making the kinds of decisions that Christ was making that night, but we are making decisions. And the decisions that we're making, one at a time, chart the course of our life. And over a lifetime, those decisions determine our future, our destiny, and whether we are in line with God or not. How much time do we really spend with God? Do we fathom how important the decisions we are making all the time really are in relation to the kingdom, in relation to our preparation for it, our part in it, decisions having to do with our relationships, our job decisions, financial decisions, personal problems? Maybe it's not a life or death decision that will keep us out of the kingdom if we make the wrong decision. But you know, over an extended period of time, We show God how focused we are on His kingdom by our decisions and whether or not we are taking those decisions to Him in prayer. You know the story of Esther? Really quite inspiring, incredibly uh, inspiring story. Of course, the command to annihilate the Jews had gone out. And Mordecai was trying to persuade Esther to stand up to bear the weight of the decision that was facing her, knowing that her life and many others hung in the balance. It's found in Esther chapter 4 and verse 1. Esther chapter 4 and verse 1. Notice it says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out in the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gates clothed with sackcloth and in every province whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes so Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to her then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. And then, of course, Esther then told Mordecai the serious consequences if she would approach the king unannounced, as he was asking her to do. In verse 10, Again Esther spoke unto Hatach and gave him commandment unto Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. But notice Mordecai's reply. I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, it sends chills up my spine. Verse 12, 
And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if you altogether hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. If you don't stand up, Esther, if you don't do the right thing, God will provide another way. But don't think you're going to get out of making this decision. You have to face it. But you and your house's father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, he hung the weight of the world squarely on her shoulders. The fate of the Jews. He knew that God would find a way to deliver the Jews, but he said, Esther, it's up to you. It's time to step up to the plate. You're in a position to do something about this. You can't hide from the decision. And aren't we faced with that from time to time, brethren? We really don't want to face a certain decision, but we know we have to. And he said, who knows? Who knows whether this is why you are even here in the first place? In this particular time, in this situation, at this particular place, to be there to make this very difficult decision. Again, not every crossroads that we face in life is life or death. But if we approach our life that God is the captain of our ship, that we are going to go to Him with our decisions, as if each one will determine our future in the kingdom, because in fact they do determine our future, don't they? It makes all the difference. Of course, Esther showed tremendous poise and courage and faith. She went to God, fasted, besought God, and God delivered her and Mordecai and all the Jews. Fascinating and inspiring story. Can help us get the big picture and realize how real God's kingdom is when we go to God. How much do we need to be close to God and walk with Him? As each day prepares us for the kingdom, we need to talk about the kingdom, we need to read about the kingdom, we need to pray about the kingdom. And you know, those of us who are parents, we need to teach our children about the kingdom. That's our next point, number four. Number four, teach your children about the kingdom. The Bible shows very clearly it's not primarily the ministry's responsibility to teach our children, it is ours Notice in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 23, we find that laid out many thousands of years ago in the instructions about the Exodus. Exodus 20, verse 12 and 23, he says, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood upon the lintel, and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to you and to your sons forever, and it shall come to pass when you are come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as He has promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What do you mean by this service? What did He say? Oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to answer them. 
You don't have to know the answer to that question. No, he said, you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. We are to have an answer. We are to be able to explain it. It's our responsibility, teaching our children on a level they can understand, teaching them God's plan. And usually they can understand far more than we think. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. He says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently unto your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, it should be a natural conversation as we go through life, as situations come up, that we explain about life to our children, including the kingdom of God, which is the most important part of our life. Verse 18, And you shall do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore unto your fathers, to cast out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. They were, of course, entering a physical promised land, but we are seeking a spiritual one, an eternal one. Verse 20, And when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall surely say unto your son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. We were under sin. We were under bondage. God called us out of the world. God opened our minds to see the truth. Not everyone sees the truth. We can explain this to our children, how they are recipients of that blessing, that we're not perfect, that we make mistakes, but that we are striving to obey God, to follow His ways, and that they can learn His ways too. In fact, we can impress upon them that these are the laws of the house, not just the decrees of the church. It's our responsibility to teach. Verse 22, And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. And, of course, God is going to come back soon at the resurrection to right all the wrongs, to bring peace to the whole world, to help all the people suffering. We can explain these things to our children and to bring His kingdom. And He'll be king, and He'll sit on a throne, and our children can understand these things. And we need to teach them. That's what God says, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. You notice that God didn't say... Tell your children how nice the leeks and onions were in Egypt. Really paint a rosy picture about how good things were back then. Tell them how great the weather was in Egypt. Always sunny, never rained. Tell them how great the fishing was there. You notice that? No, they were to say, we came out of bondage, and what's ahead of us is better than what's behind us. Not worse. I think sometimes we 
do our children a disservice if we always tell them how hard it is for them and how many sacrifices they have to make without ever telling them how great the reward is. Yes, it's hard for our children sometimes. But if we always focus on the negative, they might wind up believing us that it's not worth it. That will be the message that we send to them. That's why God said, Teach your children that it would be for our good always if we fear the Lord. Parents, that's our responsibility. You know, we as parents can feel so sorry for our children and the pressures they face that we can actually make them fearful instead of helping them to stand up and be strong. I recall one individual telling me that when his boys were in school and he was teaching them about the Feast of Tabernacles, he painted this picture of how great the feast was and all the things they got to do, how they got to go here and there and see their friends and take a whole week off. And wasn't it great that God blessed them in that way and gave them this fantastic gift of a whole week at the feast? Before long, you know, there was no envy at all that they didn't get to keep Christmas. In fact, they actually felt sorry for other kids that they didn't get to keep the feast. If we go at the Holy Days and the Sabbath from a positive standpoint, Friday nights, you know, all those issues that come up, if we go at it from a positive standpoint, instead of just all the things they can't do, we'll do a world of good for our children. The principle here is, is in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Notice, God works that way with us. He shows us it's worth it. And we have to believe that it's worth it. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. If we are parents, we need to teach our children that pursuing God's way and God's kingdom is worth it. That's how God motivates us. And that's how He will motivate our children as well. And that brings us to the last point of making the kingdom real to us. Besides talking about it, besides reading about it, besides praying about it, besides teaching our children about it, We've all got to, number five, focus on what's ahead and not on what we've given up. Focus on what's ahead and not on what we've given up. You know, this was one of the major pitfalls for the Israelites. Whenever they faced a trial, they always kind of kept going back to Egypt as a last option, as an ace in the hole, so to speak. You know, they, they had that in their, in their pocket always, just in case they had to go back. Kind of one foot there. As far as they went to the promised land, they always had one foot on the ground in Egypt. You know, it affected their faith. It affected their ability to catch the vision and their ability to really leave Egypt behind them. There's a terribly... Sad and tragic story in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. After this long trek through the desert, Israel was now almost ready to cross right over into the promised land, into that land that they had heard about for so long and were excited about. They were almost there. They were just on the cusp of 
going into that land. Notice verse 1, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel of every tribe of their fathers, shall you send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. Verse 17. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get you up this way southward and go up into the mountain and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it is good or bad, and what cities they be that dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not. And be you of good courage and bring you the fruit of the land. Now that... Time was the time of the first ripe grapes. He said, get a really good picture of it, you know. So we can see it, we can visualize it. No digital cameras back then, no camcorders. They would just have to describe it. And of course, the vision of that land would be critical for the whole congregation. Verse 25, and they returned from searching of the land forty days after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron, to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and to the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whither, where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. It's true. It's better than we would have believed. You never would have believed it if we hadn't brought some of this fruit back with us. And you know, to this day, I think the, the, the seal of the tourism agency of Israel is the two of the spies carrying the grapes on, on their shoulder. But, verse 28, there was a nevertheless here, but the people are strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great, and moreover we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. In other words, their guys are bigger than our guys. So we might as well turn around now. There's no use even trying. Verse, chapter 14, verse 1, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and all the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses, Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain. Let us return into Egypt. They had that as an option. They always had as an option going back to Egypt in case things got bad. They said, We can't do it. We won't make it. We saw it. But it's too hard. The sacrifice is too great. Let's go back. The deal's off. We've had a nice time, Moses, but thank you very much. We're out of here. You know, the interesting thing, there were two of the twelve who also walked through the land but saw it totally differently. They saw the same things that the ten faithless spies saw, and yet their conclusions were totally different. You know, we can look at the same circumstances and come up with totally different conclusions. Joshua and Caleb kept God in the picture. The others saw the land, but they didn't keep God in the picture. You young people, you may be faced with tremendous challenges 
in your life. And they are tremendous challenges. Keeping the Sabbath, keeping the holy days, dating inside the church, eventually seeking someone to marry who's converted, obeying God's commands in every area of your life, being willing to be different. Not just to be nonconformist, not just to be different, but because this world is going the wrong way. God asks you to be different. God tells you, exhorts you, pleads with you to be different. And if you have the foresight, young people, and the courage like Joshua and Caleb to see your world the way that God sees your world, you can reap tremendous blessings. If you're willing to give up a few things right now for a little while, God is offering you a place in His kingdom where you can enjoy blessings for all eternity and many blessings in this life as well. But it takes being able to see the future, the kingdom of God, a vision of the future. All of us have to every day make the choice to turn our backs on Egypt and resist the pulls of sin and the self and society. You know, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 28, Mark chapter 10 and verse 28, young people, look at what God is holding out for you and for me. Mark chapter 10 and verse 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed you. Peter and the other disciples were a group of young men who made that commitment. And Jesus told them what they would receive for their vision and their courage. Do you want a house someday? Do you want money? Do you want property? A husband or a wife or family? Well, look at what Jesus said, verse 29. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Not easy but sure worth it and sure a whole lot easier than going back to Egypt and dealing with servitude and the whims of a cruel master, Satan the devil. The way of the wicked is hard. The way of the righteous will have persecution, but God makes a way and makes that way a whole lot easier than the alternative. But most importantly, seeing the vision means that there are rewards not just in this life, but in the hereafter, he says, and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Having the kingdom of God as a crystal clear vision in our minds, it's real, makes it that much easier to resist the pulls of the world and not get pulled back into the world. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter of the heroes of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Men and women who saw into the future, who embraced the vision of the kingdom of God because it was worth it, who didn't hold on to what was in their past. Hebrews 11 and verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called out in, to go out into a place where he should, after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and he went out not knowing whether he went 
By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. God is looking for people of faith, spiritual children of Abraham, who catch the vision of what Abraham saw of that city, the kingdom of God, which started small, and God is adding to that kingdom in embryo. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. If they had always been thinking about what they left behind, of the things they were giving up, their heart wouldn't have been in it and they would have fallen by the wayside. Wherever our heart is, our body will follow. If our heart is in the world, we'll follow it eventually. But if our heart is seeking for the kingdom, we'll follow that too. Verse 16, But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. What a company of noble saints that we are joining. When you read of the strength and courage and integrity of the people listed in this chapter, if we have the vision of the kingdom, if it's real to us, not just getting sin out of our lives, but keeping it out by growing and developing as God prepares us and molds us and shapes us into what He wants to be used in that kingdom, like leaven that will fill the whole earth and universe eventually. Those are some things that we can think about even as we leave these days of unleavened bread. Let's turn in conclusion to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7 as we conclude on this feast of unleavened bread. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Why? Because the kingdom was real to him. Verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of, of God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though, verse 12, I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Brethren, with this day we are closing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've kept the feast. We have become unleavened physically and to the best of our ability spiritually. As God told Moses, and now He tells us, don't just stand still, but go forward all the way to the growing, expanding, and ultimately universe-spanning, awesome, kingdom of God.